Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is May 10th, 2018. And this is episode 18, Scheduling Awareness, the science behind Awareness Weeks. In this episode, in the spirit of celebrating Emergency Preparedness Week 2018, we're asking the question, do initiatives like EP Week actually work? So we busted out the books and conducted our own mini literature review to bring you what's known about promoting preparedness and what you can do to help others personalize the preparedness program. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian. While EP Week may be a calendar highlight for Epic listeners, for Canadians as a whole, there's a lot of competition for awareness. For example, did you know this week is also National Nursing Week? And Workplace Health and Safety Week. I know at my hospital, uh, (laughs) Nursing Week got a lot more attention than any EP messages did. And rightly so. (laughs) It's also Better Speech and Hearing Month. And in case you missed it, May 7th was World Password Day. And don't forget, May 5th was Wildfire Prevention Day. Oh, and we have Fibromyalgia Awareness Day, World Turtle Day, and Blue Cone Monochromacy International Awareness Day this month. (laughs) Is that a real thing? Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised you're not aware. (laughs) So Awareness Days (laughs) uh, started popping up sporadically in the 1970s, but they've really exploded since then. In one study we looked at in the U.S., 71% of congressional bills that related to Awareness Days have been introduced since 2005. And there's now over 200 officially sanctioned awareness events and thousands of unofficial ones. So it begs the question, is it still an effective marketing strategy or has the novelty worn off? By the way, it's interesting to note that EP Week in Canada is nationally recognized. It's organized by Public Safety Canada, but it appears more as municipal proclamations for those cities that choose to endorse it. So awareness weeks are ubiquitous, uh, but do they work? What actually motivates people to prepare and what are the barriers? And more importantly, what can we do to remove those barriers? Uh, When I got first started in in emergency management, someone I quite respect told me that all emergency managers find barriers. uh, Good emergency managers navigate barriers, but excellent emergency managers remove barriers. So personally, I think that's extra applicable when it comes to encouraging emergency preparedness. Uh, So with that in mind... Let's hit the books and review some of the foundational knowledge around why people do and don't prepare. Yeah, in terms of a theoretical grounding, the basis for awareness campaigns seems simple enough. The concept that you need to know about an issue before you can act on it, that's basically marketing 101. This is known as the information deficit model, and it's been widely held for decades uh, as a way of explaining problems with things like science communication or explaining certain health behaviors like smoking and uh, eating unhealthy foods. The concept is essentially if only people knew it was good or bad for them, then they might change their behavior. But unfortunately, abundant research shows that people who are simply given more information seldom change their beliefs or behaviors. So if knowing really is only half the battle, then what's the other half? Well, to answer this, I had to dust off some of my old school books, uh, one in particular, Facing the Unexpected by Tierney, Lindell, and Perry, and their chapter on individual and group behavior in disasters, as well as what impacts preparedness activities. And there are two models that are present in this book that I would like to share. One is a a progressive um, risk personalization model, and 
basically uh, it's a five-stage model that leads from attention to action. So first stage is, is attention. It's learning about something, getting the message in the first place. So basically hearing. Second stage is comprehension. So understanding uh, on, on sort of a theoretical level. The third stage is acceptance. So actually believing it to be true instead of just understanding what the premise is. Uh, the fourth stage is retention. So remembering it, personalizing it, making it relevant in your own life. And then the fifth stage is action. So I really like that as a conceptual model in terms of how people personalize risk and the five stages they have to go through to make it even applicable to an action. The other model that I'd like to share with you is called the protective action decision model. And this is really uh, more about the things that we as emergency managers or risk communicators or community members in general can affect so that people are more likely to take action to prepare themselves. So the basic premise is this, that there are three core functions that go into protective response, that being risk identification, risk assessment, and risk reduction, so that tangible action. And these are impacted by three different context characteristics and factors, uh, one being the social context, so things like family, social capital, uh, the community environment, ethnicity, age, socioeconomic status, those contexts need to be taken into consideration. And in the long term, those are things we might be able to affect. The second is situational factors. So physical, tangible elements in their environment that point to a disaster potentially happening. And whether that's a house burning down next to you or constant risk communication from disaster managers, that's something that we can affect sometimes and sometimes just need to talk about. The third factor are the recipient characteristics. So prior beliefs and experiences with disasters in the past. And that one's an interesting one because it's a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, people who are experienced in, in disaster response are more likely to prepare, but only to the level that they've experienced. Uh, it's hard for them to believe that something worse could happen, and that can sometimes set you up for failure. Other recipient characteristics include education, their personality traits, and their personal resources. So all of those things put into that matrix of risk identification, so understanding that the threat actually exists, going through that cognitive process of attention, comprehension, acceptance, retention, and action, and then moving to a risk assessment. Do I actually need to be protected? And that's what we can sort of affect through messaging, and then risk reduction, which is that tangible action. So coming back to awareness days, there has been some research done trying to suss out if there's any measurable effect that we can get. Uh, University of Florida and uh, Drexel University have done some work in this area. Um, and it's interesting. The Essentially, the uh, as you might expect, it's a hard thing to measure, a harder thing uh, to you know design good quality studies. But one group of researchers has found some interesting evidence that shows that awareness might actually cause harm, which seems like an odd concept. This is specifically with health awareness days, but they're finding that the call to action and the messaging is so vague that uh, you know it rarely results in much meaningful change. On the other hand, it can sometimes be misconstrued to mean 
that uh, certain medical conditions or health issues are, um, you know, simply due to the bad choices or lack of awareness of uh, the victims. So you kind of get a so-called like a victim or, or patient blaming um, uh, sentiment. So difficult thing to measure, but uh, I think it's worth asking the question because we definitely put a lot of time, energy, and resources into these awareness days, and we want to make sure we're getting good return on investment. Oh, absolutely. And and so if a, an improperly delivered awareness message or program can potentially cause inappropriate preparedness activities, I would view that a, as a barrier to preparedness. Uh, and there are a lot of different barriers to, to personal preparedness. Um some of them being the low salience of disaster. So it's hard to prepare for something that maybe you may never experience or only experience once in a lifetime. Uh, some other barriers include a lack of resources, lack of information, that low socioeconomic status. Uh, so starting from a vulnerable position in the beginning. Uh, the last one I want to talk about is that just trust. Uh, trust in authority figures in particular. So traditional messaging comes from the top, works its way down. And if there isn't a pre-existing healthy relationship between a population and the authority figures, then the messaging that goes out is not going to be successful. So there are a lot of reasons why people might have trouble preparing or internalizing that message or arriving at the conclusion that we want them to arrive at. So how do you overcome that? How do you remove these barriers to preparedness? Well, according to one group of authors, there are four essential elements to creating successful public interest communications. Firstly, you want to target your audience as narrowly as possible. Then you want to create a compelling message that has a very clear call to action. So what do you want your uh, audience to do or what uh, behavior are you seeking to change? You want to develop a theory of change and then you want to use the right messenger. So these four principles have been uh, evaluated and put into various guidance documents uh, in terms of how to create effective uh, campaigns. So let's put this to the test. Let's put um, Emergency Preparedness Week under the microscope. Uh, what was step one again, Josh? So step one is you want to target your audience as narrowly as possible. Interesting. So Emergency Preparedness Week for all Canadians uh, Traditionally, it targets, uh, uh, you know, personal preparedness or organizational preparedness. But I have to admit, uh, the first one doesn't look great in terms of a, a narrow audience. But in their defense, as we mentioned, municipal uh, agencies and organizations have the opportunity to narrow down that focus. And on their website, they've provided some tools to sort of bring emergency preparedness home. So... I'll give them half marks on that one. Yeah, and I th and on that point too, I mean, we know that disasters don't strike uh, equally, right? There are definitely socially vulnerable groups. So, um, you know, should we be targeting all Canadians for preparedness messaging or targeting vulnerable Canadians? The second step is that we should create compelling messages. So, yeah, on this one, uh, I have to give full marks. It's know the risks, make a plan, get a kit. Those are the three steps for emergency preparedness week. And although the theme changes every year, this year's theme is pretty simple, be emergency ready. So then you want to develop a theory of change. So this is, if you imagine with the end in mind at the beginning, uh, what's your desired uh, state that you're trying to achieve and how does your audience get there? So normally change isn't a 
you know instantaneous flicking of a light switch it, it's a process so um, if it was going to be having a 72-hour kit that gets uh, updated annually and uh, home uh, disaster plans that the whole family has discussed if that's your end goal then how do you get there yeah so for this one as it applies to emergency preparedness week i'm gonna have to reserve judgment for our next episode where we debate the merits of the 72-hour kit so stay tuned for that one what's the fourth and final step there and the fourth fourth one this is where you get creative so using the right messenger so having the right messenger means you know picking the right uh tool for uh, getting your message across. Uh, when we were talking about Adventure Smart recently, you know, they chose to be right on the trails, uh, you know, face to face with the uh, people they were trying to prevent uh, SAR incidents with, and you know, getting them right uh, in their in their natural environment. So, um, picking an appropriate uh, medium is really important. And so, in terms of certain uh, vulnerable groups, you may want to tailor your messenger. So what do you think Emergency Preparedness Week gets for this one? I think it's very heterogeneous across the country. So um, the way, you know, Ontario versus New Brunswick uh, uh, manages EP Week is probably quite different. And uh, it seems to be left up a lot to the local jurisdictions in terms of how they want to um, actually celebrate the week or, or do anything for the week. There is some big kind of banner type advertising from Public Safety Canada that I think is kind of a, um, a wash across the country. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think it really depends on your individual communities. Yeah, I would agree. I've seen some really great communications come out about emergency preparedness through all sorts of channels. Uh, the one thing I will commend is that there seems to be some top-level buy-in from Public Safety Canada, from federal government agencies. So uh, I, I'll give them... Actually, I don't know. Josh? I mean, I think it definitely makes us feel good, right? It makes us feel like we're doing something at the very least. Yeah. Um, it, uh, time will tell maybe in terms of evaluation if it actually is is getting the job done. Um, but uh, I think it's a good place to start. And in terms of getting the job done, I just want to share uh, one example of an Really amazing Emergency Preparedness Week 2018 initiative. This one comes out of British Columbia. So it is called the uh, the new Partners in Preparedness Program, and it links emergency management agency with commercial retailers to help deliver that 72-hour kit in a way that is easy and accessible. Uh, they've done this by preparing, well, pre-made kits and then pre-made lists of things you might require within your kit uh, and making sure those things are available in mass in their stores. Uh, so making some of the administrative and cognitive burden disappear, uh, removing those barriers so that's easy to meet that preparedness goal of having a 72-hour kit. I like this idea of meeting them where they live and, uh, and bringing preparedness to the people. What about yourself, Josh? Uh, has Emergency Preparedness Week been, been useful for you? I, th I always enjoy EP Week. Uh, I like seeing how other jurisdictions choose to um, try and model different uh, programs. Uh, locally in Alberta, I think there's quite good buy-in in, in lots of municipalities, and there's um, has been events across the province all week. So um, it's nice to see that activity, and it's a good... Uh, at least rallying point for emergency managers uh, to, to take some time that is specifically dedicated to um, 
the public education part of our jobs. Um, you know, the rest of the year, maybe uh, other other things sometimes uh, uh, come into the fore. So I think it's good, if nothing else, to have that preserved time um, or one week a year uh, where we're going to focus on public education. And for Epic Podcast, at least, it has been very useful because it forced us to research these things and talk to some really amazing people and learn about the initiatives that are out there, which meant that we got to evaluate our own preparedness as well. So I hope we've helped uh, to remove some of the barriers with this episode um, by talking about the theory behind making an effective awareness week and the theory behind why people prepare. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. Uh, Thanks for listening to our continuing EP Week uh, episodes. Uh, As always, send us an email or a tweet if you'd like to get in touch. And don't forget to enter our EP Week contest. Send us a a picture or a tweet on how you're being prepared or what your uh, specific emergency preparedness kit looks like, and you'll be entered to win an awesome epic mug, which we are very keen to distribute. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of IAEM Canada, the International Association of Emergency Managers. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter by searching Epic Podcast. And finally, a big thank you to all of our contributors and to you, our listeners. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.